Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, April 25th, 2023, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts for the evening, Lavendar and Anastasia. We are continuing our celebration of the 14th anniversary of Starseed Hotline coming online in April of 2009, Excuse me, and the 13th anniversary of Starseed Radio Academy, which first aired on March 20th, 2010. It was in our first two years of this show that Lavendar released a lot of information from her vault as she had been directed to wait until after Giant Rock cracked in California um, before she could publish or talk about it publicly. Now, with over 500 episodes in our archives, many people have yet to hear those first chapters. The Seedling, which we aired on our most recent show, goes back to the beginning of Lavendar's life on planet Earth. This formed the foundation of her life, the beginnings of her awakening, the wild things that happened around her, and how she coped. Remember, this took place in the 1960s and 70s, when no one was talking about starseeds, walk-ins, or metaphysics. Plus, it took place in Oklahoma, in the heart of the Bible Belt. In this episode, we are continuing with The Seedling Part 2, which is part of her book entitled Crack Between the Worlds, which is essentially Lavendar's autobiographical chronicle of how the ETs function. We want to thank all the star seeds from every corner of the globe who have found their way to our site and Lavendar's work over the past 14 years and counting. And our website is starseedhotline.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest and hope to starseeds. And um, just to remind you, we do our starseed confirmation readings based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your astrological chart. And the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session. Although Lavendar has now retired from doing sessions so she can continue writing and finish her book, we do have stage two uh, with myself and Emerald. And remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you'll get a window of 10 hours of power to manifest whatever you want in the coming year. You can find out exactly when that 10 hours happens by requesting your solar return timing because it's different every year. And please order that a week or two before your birthday. But if you want a reading of that chart, please order the stage two about two months before your birthday so we can get it in before your birthday. So first up tonight, I want to introduce Anastasia with her wonderful Starseed News. (laughs) Oh, thank you for the much appreciated applause, Ariel. (laughs) You deserve it. Great. (laughs) Great. Always makes me smile. Great to be with you, Ariel. Well, we've got some interesting news to share with you tonight. First off, NASA is offering a reward. NASA is going to offer, has offered, $25,000 for pieces of a meteorite that just fell in Maine. Actually, it's a 
couple weeks ago, it was April 8th, just before noon, a fireball streaked across the sunlit sky and burned up in a place called Calus, Maine. They say it's a rare event. It triggered a flurry of local news coverage, including that the Maine Mineral and Gem Museum in Bethel is offering a $25,000 reward for the recovery of any pieces that are 2.2 pounds or larger. Now, although the headline says that NASA offers $25,000, the body of the article says the museum is offering $25,000, so I'm not sure who's offering the money or if there's two rewards. In any <laughs> event, if you can find a piece that's 2.2 pounds or larger, you're going to have a good chunk of change. <laughs> Let's now, jump in the, the car. The downside is, and of course, this is one of those, of course, it, they tell us it's unlikely that anybody's going to find a kilo because meteorites are rarely so large. So that was a pretty safe reward on their part. They really want it, but the chances are nobody's going to find a piece that big. But in case they do, they're going to get 25K. Now, the museum hosts the largest pieces of lunar and Martian-born debris on Earth. And they really want to expand this collection with what the main astronomers are saying could be a bolide meteorite. A bolide is if it's visible in the daytime because it hits the atmosphere and lights up. So, And they say the different colors that the bolide makes depend on what's in it, what's it made of. Well, NASA's radar assets were able to determine that there could be about 150 to 339 grams of rock that fell somewhere between Canoose, Maine, and the Canadian territory of New Brunswick. But that was helped because of 100-mile-an-hour winds that were whipping when the meteorite crashed. They said it's actually the very first time ever that radar captured a meteorite falling over the state of Maine. The museum wow. is confident that fragments are waiting to be found. Let's go hunting, everybody. Get your backpack and the day, some day gear. We'll go out looking because <laughs> they say the flare or fireworks-like effect uh, had to have been uh, seen by a lot of people, a lot of people, so big. So they think that people are going to do just what I suggested. Go out bolide hunting, hopefully get a reward. They really are quite valuable. I mean, it would be fun to find a meteorite. All right. And for all the ladies out there, here's some news for you. Contraceptive pill for men nears reality after a major breakthrough. Sounds sci-fi, doesn't it? But they tell us that a groundbreaking contraceptive pill for men could be just around the corner after scientists have identified a gene that once removed temporarily will render sperm infertile. The potentially historic breakthrough contraceptive pill will also have no hormonal side effects and could be additionally used on animals to quell overpopulation and replace neutering. Mm. Crucially and exactly like the female contraceptive pill, the destabilization of the protein is not permanent, meaning reproductive potential will recover once the person or animal stops taking the pills. A pill for guys. There you have it. Well, you know, I have in my uh, outside junk area, which is modest. I mean, it's, don't get the idea it's a junk pile. It's not. It's a little box where I store stuff that has to be recycled. And it's getting full because our community has a once-a-year recycling program for things like batteries and electronics and stuff like that. Well, check this out, guys. I didn't know about this. I have such benefits from doing the news. Number one is your community and your companionship, and then I get good information besides. Did you know that you can recycle any device for free? Apple, Google, Staples, Walmart, and Best Buy do e-cycling. 
fact, this article calls them heroes. And they'll even pay for the shipping. I didn't know that. Wow. See? Now, the motto is, you make it, you recycle it. This is a new poll that was taken which found that half of Americans believe major companies need to be accountable for the waste their products generate. And five of the biggest corporations on the planet are doing just that. And I told you who they are. Leading the way is Apple. Since 1994, Apple has operated its own green gadget recycling program and soon began collecting devices, computers, and printers in many countries, even Android models and Windows computers, not just iPhones and Macs, diverting tons and tons of electronic waste from landfills and saving these precious materials. By 2010, Apple was recycling 19 million pounds of e-waste every year. At least 30% of the product weight sold seven years earlier, which is considered to be the device's life cycle. Apple not only recycles for free, they offer trade-in value if your devices are worth any money at all. So all of the e-waste that Apple collects in North America is processed right here in the States, and nothing is shipped overseas for disposal. Very conscientious of them. And other companies like Google give you an option to request a free shipping label to mail in some used gadgets and electronics for recycling. Now, brings us to Staples, who will recycle lots of devices, regardless of the brand, condition, or store where you originally bought them. They offer an expanded list of items eligible, not only your old desktop, laptop, tablet computers, and peripherals, but also e-readers, shredders, monitors, GPS devices, battery backups, digital cameras, M3 three players, ink shredders, and ink and toner, excuse me, ink and toner and shredders, external hard drives, cordless telephones, wireless routers, and more, according to PC Magazine. Their green collections since 2012 have totaled nearly, get this, 166 million pounds. Walmart has something called Gadgets to Gift Cards. It's a program that will pay you for your phones, tablets, game controllers, speakers, laptops, and wearables, as long as they have enough value. But no matter what condition the items are in, they'll either be recycled or reused, repaired, and refurbished. And to participate in that program, you just need to fill out an online form. You'll get a free prepaid shipping label from FedEx Ground. If your item has monetary value, you'll also receive a Walmart e-gift card. Now, PC Mag reports that Best Buy has, arguably, the best recycling program going, Best Buy. Its website details exactly what the store will take, and a drop-down menu in each category gets specific for your state. You can bring in up to three items per day. Most of them can be recycled for free. Others might make you eligible for a discount or get you a trade-in deal. Now, this new poll of 2,000 adults found over half of Americans are more likely to shop from a company that uses recycled materials in its products. Consciousness is changing. Corporations have a massive impact on the environment, and it's in their favor to be responsible for the waste that they generate. 53% of those people polled said they'd be more inclined to be sustainable in their own home or neighborhood if they saw a company take a stronger stance on climate action. In other words... Set the example, companies, and we will follow. Interestingly enough, this article just supports a conversation I had with somebody just yesterday 
I was commenting about telling them it was time to recycle the batteries. This recycling program was coming up, and that was my little pile of recyclables. And the person said to me, why should I do that? Elon Musk is blowing up big rockets. Look at the damage that's doing to the environment. And he went on and on at the list of all the people that are that are doing anything to help the environment. And in the end, he said, they're not setting an example. And, you know, I thought, that just supports the article that I just read for Starseed News. People are funny that way. So if you're listening to this, any of you people who are uh, influencers that have impact, you all need to set the example because the average person is waiting for you to do just that. Now, there is a clear want that people have for products made sustainably and a level of inspiration people gain from that when they see a company that they like doing something good for the environment. In fact, doing something good for other human beings and animals and the planet in general. So regardless of what other companies are doing, and actually even our neighbors, because I'm taking these to the recycling no matter what, no matter what any other person does, but we can all help by taking a few minutes to recycle our old electronics rather than hoarding them in a drawer and later tossing them in the trash. It's just about changing our focus just a little bit. So there's five companies for you that will help you out and maybe give you some money and maybe give you credit towards a new product. That's cool. I didn't know any of that until I got ready for the news, so I'm happy to share that with you. Right, well, cool. And maybe the rest of you, all being smarter than I am, already knew all yeah. of that. And if so, I apologize. <laughs> and I have a story with you. I wish I, I – mean, we need a slideshow. Really, we do need a slideshow for our newscast. This is the cutest little thing. It's a chihuahua. He's slightly taller than a teacup. Itsy Bitsy named the world's shortest dog, as you can imagine. The chihuahua is two years old. Named Pearl, officially the world's shortest dog, confirmed by her vet and Guinness World Records. Pearl, bless her heart, measures three and a half inches in height, meaning she's shorter than a popsicle stick. (laughs) She has her head to thank for being longer than a dollar bill. She's only five inches long, her head included. She comes from a lineage of tiny and relatively calm chihuahuas. She's not barking constantly. With her ancestor, who's named Miracle Millie, being the previous Guinness World Record holder for the shortest dog. Her ancestor, Miracle Millie, previously the smallest dog, Chihuahua. Her owner said, we're blessed to have her and to have this unique opportunity to break our own record and share with the world this amazing news and this amazing dog. She's adorable. You ought to see the videos. Now, they tell us that Pearl is a diva at heart. She wears fancy things like diamond necklaces and tutus and things like that. They dress her up. Yeah, they do. I'm sorry, they do. She is fond of high-quality pet food, wearing accessories like glittering collars and sweaters and listening to, yes, she loves classical music. She also loves to cuddle her owners and watch television. She does. The video shows it. Cute. Well, as is customary for dogs, her height was measured with a measuring wicket and was carried out from the bottom of the foot to the withers, which is a ridge between the shoulder blades present in all dogs. Pearl loves the attention her short stature attracts, including uh, from uh, Vanessa's three other dogs. The family has four dogs in total and three other dogs, all normal sizes. And one of them, by the way, is a little um, terrier, which, you know, they're small. But the terrier absolutely swamps the chihuahua, this little three-inch, three-and-a-half-inch tall chihuahua. The terrier is, uh, looks immense. It looks huge. So it's adorable. Four little dogs. They're mostly all little, more more little than what I ever had. 
and that little teeny tiny chihuahua who's just as cute as a button. So now you know what is the uh, smallest dog in the world is three and a half inches tall. So there you have it. Wow. Uh-huh. By the way, she, she's not much bigger than her owner's watch. He had a big gold watch on his wrist. And uh, I'll tell you, the doggy's head's not much bigger than that watch. Wow. All right. Well, this is a wonderful story, you guys. I'm always really into, and I don't mean to be selfish about this. I guess it's only natural that I'll pick stories that I find fascinating. But the things I want to share with you and always been interested in, the idea of um, sustainable building supplies and how to make housing far, 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 far less expensive for people and having it so that the average person can actually buy some property and build himself a house. A lot of our star seed have over time built straight uh uh, straw bale houses and things like that. Well, now there's a man from Mexico who is really a visionary person. He's begun to turn piles of beach seaweed into bricks. And uh, we've heard about this seaweed now that's coming into the States, by the way. Uh, really stinky stuff. Well, it's been visiting Mexico for a while. Now, while tourists visit Mexican beaches and uh, complain about the piles of this smelly seaweed, uh, one Mexican reckoned it was something of, as a gift. He had a positive attitude. Now, the governments in places like Cancun, where I used to go for fun, have been required to clear away as much as 40,000 tons of sargassum seaweed. It smells like rotten eggs. But this man, whose name is, I think is delightful, Omar de Jesus Vasquez Sanchez, uh, Omar de Jesus Vasquez Sanchez, is uh, steering it away from the landfills. He's taking it out of the dump, and he's putting it into a kiln where he makes adobe-like blocks that pass regulation as a building material. Oh, there's more, more to tell you. He started this company called Sarga Block to market these bricks, which are being highlighted by the United Nations Development Program as a stroke of brilliance and as a sustainable solution to a current environmental problem. We're short on building materials, and we're certainly short on housing. Well, this started back in 2015 when he, like a laborer, any experienced laborer, uh, found that rich people were stuck with a job they didn't want to do. In that case, at that point, the the things that rich people didn't want to do was clean up their beaches. They didn't like the seaweed, and they didn't want to have to clean it up. So he grew up very poor, and he was imaginative, and he decided, hey, I'm just going to, I'll create a business. I'll clean up the seaweed, which is what he did. Um, But before all that happened, he wanted to live in the United States. He had an ambition to move to America. This is before the seaweed story. He came to America, and actually he got addicted to drugs. Um, And he was an immigrant, and he had a really tough time. He had a really hard time in the States. He said he uh, really had to work hard to get himself put back together. He decided that the American dream wasn't, wasn't what he really wanted. What he wanted was a Mexican dream. He decided to go back home uh, to um, heal himself, to heal the memories of his childhood, uh, get involved with the soil and the earth and become a gardener. He got healthy. He got well. And that is when he came across the idea for the seaweed uh, to make a business out of it. And he said, um, when you have problems with drugs or alcohol, you're viewed as a problem for society. No one wants anything to do with you. They look away. He said when the sargassum seaweed started arriving, it created a similar reaction. Everyone was complaining. He said, I wanted to mold something good out of something that everyone else saw as bad. So he gathered together a cleanup crew. 
He provided work for 300 families. And in Mexico, that's a lot. And it was not long after that that he found the sargassum could be used to make bricks, blocks of bricks. Now, these blocks contain 40% sargassum. And from 2021 to today, he's used almost 6,000 tons of this stinky, stinky seaweed to fire these blocks, which he's used to build structures all around the state of Jalisco in Mexico. The Ecology and Environment Offices of the area, includes the city of Cancun, approved these blocks for use. And uh, now they reckoned that they are capable of lasting 120 years. The United Nations Development Program selected this man's work to be featured in their Accelerator Lab global broadcast to alert the world of its value and its ingenuity and that it answers so many of the world's problems. So (laughs) this man has also uh, built houses for other people in Mexico. He donated uh, 14 houses to families in need uh, out of these bricks. And he said in doing so, he is close now to achieving his Mexican dream because he was actually able to build a house for himself out of the bricks as well. So himself and 14 other houses, and he's still making houses for impoverished Mexicans, many who've never had a house and never had any hope to have a house. And these are lovely bricks, and the houses are nice little simple, humble homes, but they're homes uh, neat and tidy and strong and amazing, just amazing. You have to love the human being, and people that overcome these adversities, and they... They get these wonderful strokes of inspiration from their souls, and they, they step out and they do something incredible. Oh, God, you just got to love it. The life is good. It is. All right, another last story. Actually, there's two more, real quick. Uh, this is about dogs and locating a lost dog and how to protect your dog from being lost. You know, when the ID chips first came out, I was growling and grumbling, you know, kind of grumbling about that. I don't like the idea one bit. But I guess it's helped save some animals. I'm too old-fashioned, that's all. But now they've come up with something different. It's a South Korean startup company that has developed, oh, well, yes, an artificially intelligent based application that will scan your dog's nose print. Your dog has a nose print, which is like a human fingerprint. Yeah. So this app scans your dog's nose print and places it into a database so that anybody can access it and identify the owner of a lost dog. Yep, it turns out that a dog's nose prints are just as individual as a human's thumbprint, and the advantage of using it to identify a lost dog over a microchip is that no one has a microchip scanner in their house. So if you find a stray dog, what are you going to do? Many people don't want to take them to a vet. Well, now all they have to do is use their cellular phone, open up the app, and take a picture of the dog, and if it's a dog who's had his nose print put in the database, he'll be found and returned to his owner. Anybody who loses track of a cat or dog knows the fear that we experience when we think we'll never see them again. Oh, gosh, hours and hours I spent out there hollering for the dog and the cat. Ah, terrible thing. Well, collar tags and microchips can be ways for good Samaritans to help reunite lost animals with their owners, but the tags and the collars can fall off. Microchips, again, are not accessible for somebody who doesn't want to drive the stray animal to the vet. So you can register your dog, your dog 
by taking a picture with your smartphone. And cat owners are in luck, too, because the algorithm can ID cats by their whole face rather than just a nose. Now, once the image is captured, it's, sto- it's stored in this database, and somebody can find you and find you, if they can find your pet. And you've got it in the database. They can locate you. So it's wow. crowdsourced. Uh, it's a crowdsourced database. Everybody can use it. It's not owned by anybody in particular. Um, they want any, as many people as possible to use the application for shelters, vet clinics, and other pet businesses to get the word out. So it's called PetNow, and uh, you can look that up on the Internet. And uh, they're just now developing it, so maybe you want to join up. Cool. Finally, lastly, a wonderful story Yeah. about two characters, a dog and a goat. <laughs> a dog and a goat that are so close that the shelter that they're in decides that they cannot place them in a home unless they put them as a team. Well, this starts. the story starts with the Wake County Animal Hospital, where the workers have just been scratching their heads when a dog named Felix uh, was came to their facility, along with a goat named Cinnamon. Felix and Cinnamon, they came together. They were dropped off by animal control, who had taken them from a house whose owner had been hospitalized and had no one else to look after the goat and the dog. So the uh, workers at the animal hospital recognized really soon that these two were a very special situation. When they first tried to separate them, It didn't work. Cinnamon became very upset. She was bleating and calling out to the dog. She was so stressed and frantic that we realized this pair had to be kept together. The story was originally described to the Washington Post. Well, generally, the shelter didn't take in farm animals. After 10 days, they served notice to the previous owner that it was time to come and take the animals back. But he did not. At that point, the shelter assumed ownership, They decided to keep them, and they printed up a very strange adoption notice. Felix and Cinnamon spent every hour together at the shelter except for when they ate, because Cinnamon hates being apart from Felix, but if they eat side by side, the bulldog would eat all of her food. (laughs) So they love to cuddle. They cuddle together. They romp around in the yard. Um, They just cannot be separated. They They even give each other baths with their tongues. One of the shelter people said, this is a weird duo, but it works for them. Who are we to judge? They obviously love each other. So they put up a Facebook post and attempt to find a, house, a home for the pair, an adopted family. Uh, they got so many comments, it just absolutely went viral. But there has been an update just uh, last couple weeks ago, informing the public that they have found a home for Cinnamon and Felix. The shelter knew that they had to stay together, and unfortunately, they actually found a family who agreed. They found a family with a farm and a place for them, and uh, family experienced with animals. So we have to wish Cinnamon and uh, <laughs> the dog, uh, Felix, a very happy, happy life together in their new home. So oh. there it is, a goat and a dog. Ah, life's beautiful, really. It is. Mm. I wish all of you to have a beautiful couple of weeks ahead, and I'm looking forward to hearing tonight's show. This is important stuff you're playing for us. I love each and every one of you, so take care, everyone. Thank you, Ariel. I always look forward to seeing you, every, hearing you anyway, every couple of weeks. I love it. Thanks. Uh, well, thank you have so much, night, Anastasia. Honey. Good job. Talk to Thanks. you in two Bye-bye. weeks. Okay. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye.
Oh, that's such a sweet story. I'm just picturing the dog and the goat. So uh, on with the show, we have for you our um, presentation of part two of Lavendar's The Seedling. And remember, this originally aired uh, 13, 13 years ago. So a lot of you haven't heard it yet, but there's great information. So here we are with The Seedling. Part two, and there's going to be a, a little bit of overlap as she will read a few paragraphs from the last episode for continuity. Last week, Lavendar started the story of the beginning of her experience on planet Earth with her chapter called The Seedling, which laid the foundation for the journey that took her to Giant Rock and beyond. If you haven't heard our last two episodes called Crack Between the Worlds and The Seedling, we hope you make the time to listen to them in the archives and then join us each week as the Chronicle progresses. Before others were even channeling ET information, Lavendar was living the demonstrations of galactic operations even in childhood. Her true life story includes more than just contact with ETs. She's had high-level involvement in their projects and countless demonstrations of how they operate. During all of her assignments, one of her tasks has always been to chronicle her experiences and track the energy. Today, Lavendar will be presenting the second half of The Seedling, which starts with her relationship with Eddie Fisher, the famous singer, actor, and former teen idol. In last week's episode, she mentioned briefly that she'd be talking about him and their ET connection. I know she was saddened to hear that he passed from this world the next day. All of our past shows are available on demand at blogtalkradio.com forward slash starseedradioacademy. If you're new to our show, you've missed a lot of chapters, but they're still still available for you to catch up. If you haven't visited our main site yet, which is starseedhotline.com. We have a lot of fascinating and necessary information for Starseed in our vault of knowledge, like Lavendar's Discovery of Star Markings, Solar Return, Your Ten Hours of Power, The Teton Reports, and Starseed Booby Traps. Make sure you check that out. It's a free Internet classroom library for Starseed. I'll be introducing Lavendar in just a moment, but first I'd also like to mention that she has written two books for Starseed, which are now available as e-books on our site. The first one, 50 Questions and Answers, is a transmission from the Antares Arcturus Midway Station, where she had the opportunity to ask 50 profound questions and be answered clearly and truthfully by Silovon, an ascended guardian of this galaxy. The second e-book, Quartz Crystals, A Celestial Point of View, is a comprehensive guide for the starseed use of crystals, including solar star dates for the next 10 years for charging crystals with galactic frequency. Now, it's time to introduce Lavendar to continue her remarkable story. Hello, Lavendar. Welcome. Thank Once you. Again. Or should we they just go listen to it? <laughs> Well, I actually I record I pre-recorded this, and I did start, I backed up a couple of uh, paragraphs, okay. which kind of okay. explains uh, the situation of me leaving Tulsa and going to Las Vegas. So, if you want to go ahead and hit the button, uh, the, then go ahead. The, the okay. story begins. Okay. 
Here we are presenting the seedling part two. I'd like to back up and read the paragraph from last week's radio show. When the night was over, I got in my little car to drive home. As I started the car, I looked up at the windshield and written in, in the condensation in human handwriting were the words, You'll have this man for three years and no more, February 12, 1972. When I saw it, it freaked me out. I thought, who would do this? But then there was the fact that my car was locked and the message was written from the inside. This really freaked me out. In fact, it freaked me out so bad that I had to leave Tulsa. The next day I went to my boss and said, you know, you've been wanting me to go to Las Vegas. Well, I want to go tomorrow. The next day I got on an airplane and left for Vegas. This was the third extraterrestrial occurrence in my life, but this time I was more awake. After my encounter with Jim, things started happening to me. When I got to Vegas, who did I run into but Eddie Fisher and Elizabeth Taylor? Everywhere I'd go, I was always meeting people who were extraordinary or famous. I was always in situations that I seemed to have been guided to having these experiences. Now for Eddie Fisher, little did I know that he was a bit player in my ET experiment. His divorce from Elizabeth Taylor had left him in deep depression and coping with celebrity headlines had taken its toll. After he divorced Elizabeth, I was in a brief relationship with him. I can recall that I first met Eddie at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas in 1963 where he was performing. I remembered being seated by the stage and when he came out to sing, he looked down at me and a flush hit his face and then he paused as, if, as in for, some form of recognition. I noticed that he glanced at me often during his performance and when the show was over, one of his assistants tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if I would accompany him backstage as Eddie wanted to see me. When I got backstage, he grabbed both of my hands and started kissing them. I was a little taken back and didn't know how to respond to his gestures. We had a late dinner, and then we gambled until dawn. He was a perfect gentleman, and I was his guest for the next four days. When I got ready to leave from my plane, he set me down and handed me a ring. Now this ring was huge, so big, that it was just gaudy. It had 12 blue sapphires, 9 rubies, 18 pearls, 24 emeralds, and 33 diamonds. I gasped when I saw it, and it was then that he explained to me that he had bought it for Elizabeth Taylor and had given it to her, but when they divorced, he asked for it back. Now he said that he wanted me to have it, as it was one way of releasing her, as my physical resemblance to her was amazing, but he said my soul was nothing like her. Therefore, he wanted me to have the ring. He said that by spending time with me, somehow it helped him heal over the loss of Elizabeth. It seemed that even at 21, I was in my natural state of doing counseling, and this time it was for Eddie Fisher. When I returned home, I showed the ring to my father, and he threw a fit and made me send it back. I regret that decision big time. I took pictures of it and have it even to this day. I wrote on the back of the picture how many gemstones were in the ring, and years later I saw that they matched the Athena codes, 9, 12, 18, 24, 33. These are codes of activation that wouldn't even surface until August 15, 1991, 
when I was given the story of Athena and the 96 goddesses. When I finally realized after all these years that my relationship with Eddie Fisher was probably for the sole purpose of journaling how these experiments are started by them, monitored and navigated by them so that activation happens and is taken to the next level. After I gave him back the ring, I only saw him privately one time and he flew to Oklahoma City to see me. We talked by phone for years and I always considered him to be one of the messengers from the other where, as a lot of our conversations seemed to be directed through him and not by him, if you get what I mean. Now back to 1968 and, and talking about my runaway trip to Vegas because of seeing the writing on the windshield. When I got there, I noticed that Eddie Fisher was playing at the Frontier Hotel. Talk about weird timing. Elizabeth Taylor was doing a movie with Warren Beatty called The Only Game in Town at Caesar's Palace just down the street. I was with Leo Diamond, a multimillionaire who was a regular at Caesar's Palace. And we were with Jerry Gordon, who was the general manager of Caesar's Palace at that time. Jerry says, Leo, the two of you come with me. So we go upstairs to our room and knock on the door, and who opens the door but Richard Burton? And he was there with Elizabeth Taylor. We walked inside, and Leo did the most, well, he did most of the talking, period. He asked Elizabeth what time she thought she'd be through with shooting. She told him about what time, and they'd be finished. And then Elizabeth told Leo that she'd like to go see a show after the shooting, and she asked him to find a show to take her to. And, and of course, Elizabeth Thur Burton also. Elizabeth looked at me, and I looked at her, and for just a few seconds, we, we had a soul recognition. I will never forget what she was wearing. It was that beautiful lavender. It matched her eyes. Yes, she really does have lavender eyes. So when her shooting was over, Elizabeth and Richard Burton came out and got into the car. We asked what show, no, she asked what show we were going to go see, and Leo thought it'd be really funny to say, well, we're going to go see the Eddie Fisher show. Well, Elizabeth didn't think it was funny and said, take me back to the hotel now. So that was the end of Elizabeth that night. I turned to Leo and said, you know, that wasn't very funny. But he thought it was very funny. Now, this was not a joke. He really did have a table reserved for the Eddie Fisher show. So after we dropped her off, we turned around and went anyway. But this time, Eddie had heard that Elizabeth might be coming to the show. When he comes out for his performance, he looks down at the table, and I'm sitting there. He stopped and said, well, if it's not my little Miss Oklahoma. Here I am having all these experiences, but in the meantime, I'm still running away from Jim. By this time, Leo Diamond had fallen in love with me. He was a very rich man, very attracted to me. But here came the can't have any earth children speech. So I went back to Tulsa. Just as a side note, I remember going backstage after the show and seeing Eddie, and he had um, remarried, and, and I saw his baby. And uh, we talked briefly about what had just happened. I told him that Elizabeth was on her way over and gave him some details of, you know, her getting out of the car. And he just smiled and hugged me and, and thanked me for, for coming. It was um, actually the 
you know, the last time that I really saw him. So when I returned back to Tulsa, I fell hard for Jim in this experience. This would be my first experience connecting with a soulmate on a very, very deep spiritual level. We were on such a high spin of soul union, I could hardly function in my daily radio business. This went on for three years, just like the writing on the windshield said, except the date was off by one month. We decided to get married on March 27, 1972. As the February 12th date had passed, and I thought we were safe from the invisible hand, so on March 27th, Jim was in North Carolina and decided to take a treadmill test before he got on the airplane to fly to Tulsa, as we were to be married that night. Right after his test, he went to lay down and had a heart attack and died on our wedding day. This would become a major turning point in my life that would mark major activations for so many things later. I was in the courtroom in Tulsa covering a murder trial when two friends showed up and escorted me back to my apartment to tell me that Jim was dead. What I went through for the next several months was a twilight story on a daily basis. I do want to mention uh, the last time I did see Jim. It was on March 13th of 72. I remember going to this lake and hearing the song MacArthur Park and thinking about how I felt. We were going to be married on March 27th and we were sitting there looking out over the water hearing the song. Then this deja vu thing started happening. I couldn't get a handle on it. At the airport, I walked him to the plane. He turned around, looked at me, waved, and my heart sank to the bottom of my stomach. And I thought, what was that? The feeling that I experienced was like I knew that something was going to happen, but I didn't know what it was, but I knew it, and I felt it, and it was devastating. So when I heard of his death, I remembered that feeling. I was in total shock, so stun gun that I stayed drunk for two years. I had left the radio station and became an advertising director for the Camelot Inn hotel chain in Tulsa. Well, now back to Jim. He was buried on March 30th. Shortly after that, things started happening. Weird things started happening, especially things that had to do with batteries. Anyone that I was around who had a battery they were using for something had a big surprise awaiting for them. The minute they got in into the pre in my presence, uh, the battery would just drain down. That was one of many things that happened to me. You know, I can also remember going and looking down at the casket and saying to him, Oh, Jim, I never had anybody love me enough to give me my total freedom, and that's what you just did. And I remember a, a tear came down out of my, off my face onto his face, and it trickled. And I, I really thought I saw him smile. It was a very weird moment, seeing him in the casket, and having that experience. Jim hung around for about two years, out of body. Had a lot of experiences with him, and one experience that I had with him was called playing radio. I could be thinking of a song that I wanted to hear on a certain station, and I could turn to that station, and he would thought adjust a disc jockey to play that song. When this started happening, I'd go and pick up my friend Arlene, who worked for a big ad firm. Although she was 15 years older than me, we were great buddies. 
She was my mentor in so many ways. I'd go by her office, and if she wasn't there, I would leave a message for her to call my office, because you're going to be late. When she would call, I'd say, what song would you like to hear on the radio station? And she'd tell me, and I would put it there, and of course it would play. Oh, well, that was just a coincidence, I'd say. Now pick another one. Three or four songs later, we had to stop and get a bottle of whiskey. A little later, we had to stop driving. I I believed it then that it was Jim, although now it, it could have been another type of demonstration. During those two years, if I decided to take someone home, he would go in and start banging closet doors and flipping the lights on. There was one poor guy that I'll never forget. He grabbed his clothes, put it on his shirt, and I saw his little bare ass running down the driveway in search of a cab. Then if I had a date in it, and it hadn't gotten really to the point of intimacy, but was about to, he would simply, Jim would, take a cup of coffee and turn it upside down on the guy. And if the guy stayed over and was in the shower, the things the shower would attack him, the shampoo, the soap, whatever was in there would start flying around hitting whoever was in the shower. This went on for two years. Finally, at the end of my rope, I went to see my friend David Cohen, who was an executive producer of B-grade movies. When he saw what condition I was in, he literally picked me up and took me to his place. I was so devastated with Jim's death that I was suicidal. I didn't want to live. But David really helped me and pulled me through my dilemma. David made a way for me to leave Tulsa. He took me to California to the Hollywood Hills to visit, where later I would move in with a girl named Dana Marshall. This was the start of my metaphysical journey. The seedlings that had been sown in my early life were now about to grow into saplings. Chapter 2, California, Here I Come. David moved me from Tulsa in 1974 and had arranged my stay with a woman named Dana Marshall who lived in the Hollywood Hills in California. Dana had an organization called Academy of Atlantis, which specialized in Atlantean astrology and also extraterrestrial contact. She did mirror writing, which is backward writing through a spirit named Frenette. You'd have to put carbon under her messages, or you'd have to hold them up to a mirror to read it. Frenette was a spirit guide for the Academy of Atlantis and would do private readings for those who wanted to know more about their karmic records. The reason I had gone on this quest was to find out what happened to Tim after he died. I had the questions that all people want to know after a loved one has died. I wanted to know where he was now and would I ever see him again. This was my quest. So I was living in this big house in the Hollywood Hills, a gorgeous place with white marble, just like a doorstay movie. That's where I got personally acquainted with extraterrestrials because ETs would show up for demonstrations at the academy. The first extraterrestrial that I got to know was named Pre. He was big and about 14 feet tall with blue skin and three rows of teeth. He was not very pleasant looking, but he was a very kind man or person, ET I guess I should just call him. and. And he was a bodyguard for me while I was in California. 
He stayed in another dimension most of the time, but would materialize when I asked him to. The first time I saw him, I thought, oh my God, because the sight of him was most shocking. My encounter started right after I had finished watching television. I had gone to my bedroom, readied myself for bed, and turned out the light. All of a sudden, a bright illumination filled the room. I thought that the light had been turned back on, but it was still in its off position. There was this unexplained bright glow in the room. As I looked over towards it, there standing next to my bed was this thing, 14 feet tall with blue skin and three rows of teeth. I panicked. I did not know what was going to happen to me. With this two-eyed, three rows of teeth, 14-foot purple, blue, purple eater going to devour me? The next moment he placed his hand on my third eye and a calmness came over me. He telepathically explained to me who he was and what his presence would mean to me later in my life. I was not to be afraid of him. In fact, I was to call on him for guidance whenever I felt the need to do so. He has been in and out of my life ever since. He is part of the Galactic Secret Service that you hear me speak about. He told me his name was Pre and that he had been sent to work with me. He said I had a great destiny ahead of me and that he'd be around to help me achieve it. Broken as I was, but on the men, this made no sense to me. I wondered why would anyone in their right mind want me for anything. Prue was true to his word. He became a fixture around the house, coming and going, and even showing up at the academy for everyone else to see. We had many extraterrestrial experiences at the Academy of Atlantis, one right after another. It was constant E.T. and spirit guide excitement. Explained and unexplained things were happening 24-7. I have a lot of stories that just relate to things that happened then. I studied the Academy for two years. 1974 and 1975, I was learning astrology and esoteric subjects, but mostly ET related. During this period, I had many headaches, so I went to have some x-rays made. I guess you might say that I had my head examined. After examining my first x-ray, they thought that I had a tumor, but after a more thorough ex examination, they found that I had a double pineal gland. Pre told me that I was genetically designed that way so that I would live in one side, that the ETs would come and go through the other. That is why I have a double pineal, and I can tell you it's no picnic either. The coming and going which happens in my head at times makes me feel like I'm a candidate for the shady rest home for the extraterrestrial challenged. Jim was still in contact with me. He would contact Frenette, who would give me messages. This happened all the time. He was really glad when he found someone to relay messages through. But I became dependent on his messages, and this, you know, this became a distraction in, to my life at so many levels. I wasn't allowing myself to have another relationship because I could talk to Jim every day. The other wearer finally saw what was happening and started shifting my realities, and I mean fast. On March 15, 1975, I was standing in the kitchen doing dishes. When Jim came up behind me, I could actually feel 
and hear him. He hugged me and said with a little sadness, I've come to tell you goodbye. But before I leave, I need to tell you that Erlene is in trouble. You need to call her. You need to call Erlene now. I'm going to go back into body now, and it's time for me to let you go. I'm the one that's been keeping you from your path. Now you're on your path, and I have to let you go. And you have to let me go. When his energy left, I slumped to the floor and just cried and heaved. Then I thought, I've got to check on Arlene, so I called, but I couldn't find her. I kept calling and calling, but no Arlene. Later that night, I got a phone call from Charlie, her husband. They had found her slumped over the wheel of her car. She had had a angina attack. It was through my efforts of trying to find her that she was actually found. This was in 1975, but she actually died later in 1987 of a heart attack. As a side note about the two-year period that I was mourning Tim, Erlene and I were drinking a lot. We would take driving trips, and on several occasions we'd be driving along and suddenly we'd be 80 or 100 miles down the road and we'd have missing time. This happened to us a lot. I never related it to anything until years later when I learned about missing time and how that happens with a, a lot of ET contact. ETs, well, by then, it was just a strange thing that we couldn't explain, so we didn't talk about it or even acknowledge it. We just said, okay, let's just go have a drink. That's how we dealt with it. All these years later, I think back on my time with Erlene, and she was riding shotgun for most of these ET experiences. The day she left the planet, I felt a huge hole hit my heart. While living in California, Jerome King Criswell, better known as the Amazing Criswell, an American psychic who was known for Criswell Predicts, he was a white-haired man who appeared on Johnny Carson many times and who had written several books. He also had several books written about him. He is what we call in Oklahoma a real colorful character. He knew I had psychic ability, so he came to me and asked if I wanted to go with him to Vegas for a big psychic fair. He said, Peter Herkus is going to be with us, and there will be this big stage for the three of us to perform. There will be over a thousand people there. This will be at the Hilton. What do you think? Peter Herkus was a Dutchman who received extrasensory perception abilities following a head injury that resulted from a fall off a ladder at the age of 30. With the help of businessman Henry Belk and parapsychologist Andrea Puarich, Peter Herkus became a popular entertainer known for performing psychic feats before live and television audiences in the manner very similar to Yuri Geller. So I said with enthusiasm, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'll do that. We went to Vegas, and it was a big success. People would hand me a watch or a ring, and I'd just read them right down to their socks. It was astonishing. I was amazed at my abilities and how far I had come. I did this for five days, and I was really, really good. When it was over, I told Chris, you know what? I'm glad I had this experience because I'm going to tell you something that's not that it's not nice talking to a person in front of other people. You know what? I'm not going to be doing this again. He said, "Why not? You're so good. We can travel together and you can you can become famous." I said, "No, I'm done. I know I can do it. So fine. When this fair is over, I'm done." 
at the fair, I had a little booth where I did tarot and, and readings. I was really good in those days. It was at the fair where I met Belva Bloomer, who would become my lifelong friend. I looked at her and said, oh, there's this big clock and you have a broom and you're sweeping time off your clock. What are you up to? And she said, well, I'm going in for a facelift tomorrow. I told Belva's husband, Vernon, that he was an artist and that his work would be seen all over the world. Well, that came true. I wrote a book, Quartz Crystals, The Celestial Point of View, and Vernon's art was on the cover, and I sold the book all over the world. For some reason, I couldn't leave Vegas. Every time I tried to leave, something held me there. I was between that rock and that hard place. I didn't want to be in Vegas, but I couldn't think of any place else I wanted to be. Belva took me under her wing, so to speak, and helped me along. She gave me a space in her beauty salon, so I began my practice of making personalized astrology charts and individual psychic readings. I had a little room in the back where clients would come for a reading after they had their hair and nails done. We often call this the, the metaphysical watering hole. It was, the place was called the Lash. I had this business from 1975 to 1979. I was booked all the time. At first, I worked for donations. I didn't have a price because I didn't really know how to charge for my service. I received whatever people wanted to pay me. The donations were great. The people that I worked with were show people, gamblers, hookers, and they were always generous, so there was always an abundance of money. People would give me 20 or $30 for a reading, but some of my clients, well, they thought it was worth more than that. Then one day, this lady came to me and suggested that I place a figure on my service. She said, don't you realize that if you don't put a price on your service, that people will owe you at another lifetime, and you'll have to see those people again someplace? Since my thing was getting rid of as much karma as I could, I started charging a flat fee. And my income did change, and it was amazing. When Jimmy Hoffa went missing, the local authorities came to me for help. They wanted me to determine whether or not he was buried in the desert. I flew all over the desert in a rented helicopter looking for Jimmy Hoffa, but he wasn't there. To this day, they still don't know where he's buried, presumably that he is dead. I got to love Vegas because I was booked nonstop. I had many clients from many backgrounds. I had one client who was a mobster, whose name I won't reveal, who wanted me to do some work for him. I had clients who were ladies of the evening, and they were a real mystery to me. I tried to understand the psyche of a woman who would sell her body for money. I wanted to help them, but when they, when they came to readings, but you know, what they were going through in their soul was so deep, I never really could touch it. All I could do was offer them a Band-Aid. I had this one client named April. She came to me saying, you know, you only have five to seven years as a prostitute, then you have to retire. That's why my pimp is told me to invest my money, and he's investing it for me. He told her that he was buying racehorses. Something rang really foul in paradise, so I got the horse's names from her and decided to check it out. I was running with the Frank Sinatra crowd during the time, 
and it was easy to get inside information. What I found out really confirmed my suspicions. He was stealing from her and not investing her money. When I told April about her pimp stealing from her, well, April, not being too smart, told her pimp that I knew that he was stealing from her. She also bit his penis so hard that doctors had to do major surgery to save it. Not long after that, as I pulled into my driveway one night, I opened my car door. I heard the sound of a gun being cocked. And here's where the Galactic Secret Service is in operation because the next thing I remember was being under the car and I didn't remember how I got there. Several shots were fired, hitting the car, but not me. Pissed, I called my big mobster friend, who said he would take care of it. He calls the police who were working for him to make the situation go away. The pimp was never heard from again. April, who continued to come for readings, thought it was strange that he had just disappeared. I'm pretty sure he's in the desert somewhere. Now here's an ironic story about my mob friend. I got a phone call one day telling me that he had died and he wanted me at his funeral. I was so sad that he was gone. At the funeral I was handed a note saying that he had left me $10,000. I think I still have the note. This all happened in 1977 because the funeral was about the same time I went down to Frank Sinatra's house in Palm Spring to cook Texas chili for the television event of contract on Cherry Street, but that's another story. Anyway, in 1979 I got a phone call that a limo was coming to pick me up for a special client. I was told, no it was 77, I'm sorry, I was told that this man was in town and that he wanted my psychic services. When the limo arrived, I stepped into the car. When I made contact with my client, there was something strangely familiar with him, but I didn't know what it was. After several minutes with him, he told me his name. It was my mobster friend who had a new face and a new identity. Oh, I guess it was in 79. Okay. The whole funeral had been set up, and he had pulled it off to the world he was dead. In the limo, my friend asked me to continue to do work for him because I had been so good and fair with him. I was not to tell anyone that he was alive. When he finally came back into town, no one ever knew who he was except for just a few of us. Under a new identity, my friend became one of the biggest casino operators in Las Vegas. Anything I ever wanted, I could have. Anything. Anywhere. Anytime. He disappeared again around 1987, or was it 1988, somewhere in there. I lost touch with him. Whenever I've tried to find out anything about him, nobody knows anything. He paid me well, he respected me, and I did a lot of work for him. He was a gangster, and I was the gangster psychic. And one thing that kept me silent about his identity was because, well, he saved my life, and I knew that I owed him. Well, that is... <laughs> the end of the seedling chapter, and the seedling goes to California. Lavendar? Yes, I'm here. You're here. Where do we go now? Well, um, uh, the, the next um, time, or ne I guess next week, I'll go deeper into different things that happened while I was in Vegas and 
the different uh, ET experiments that started happening. And I'll go into more detail about my time with Frank Sinatra and um, you know some of those some of those stories will be next week. And each week, you know, I'll just keep, um, you know, I'll, I'll read for like 20, 25, 30 minutes, and then I'll leave the rest of the time open for questions. And I have different things that I want to talk about each week. You know, like this week, for instance, um, I want to talk about, um, you know, the cell phone towers. You know how I feel about them. <laughs> um, sure. They're a real nuisance and they're harmful. And, uh, you know, it's been a big concern of mine. Well, guess what? It's a very big concern for our ET friends, too. And uh, they're setting up their own surveillance system around where these cell phone towers are placed. And they're using animals. They're using um, mostly horses and cats as monitoring devices for readouts about the electromagnetic pollution, not only for cell phone towers, cell phones, uh, computers, you know, all forms of, of, of technology that's, you know, makes our way of life more advanced. They now have a have their own relay system set up to monitor on a daily basis. Every 24 hours, there's readings. So if your horses or cats start having that glazed look in their eye or they start, you know, there's there they hold devices that are little tiny computer chips that are doing these readouts. And there's some beings that actually do come down and sit for a while in these animals. So I I wanted to bring that up today, Ariel. I thought that um you know, I mentioned the galactic horses, you know, last week and I just wanted to bring up the fact that that these um, gigantic experiments are happening now in monitoring. And are they monitoring the level of electromagnetic radiation? Are they are they measuring the harmful? Are they measuring the information that's being broadcast? Are they are they looking for um, uh, you know how I mean cell phone towers can be used to broadcast more than just phone calls. They're doing it all. They, doing I it mean, all. the readouts—they go from, you know, you know. <laughs> oh, how do I explain this? Um, they can tell how many souls at one time are on a phone. They can tell how many souls are on their internet. Uh, they can tell the degree of consciousness raised, whether it's up spiral or down spiral. They can tell the electromagnetic frequencies, and some places are more harmful to live than others. I mean, it just goes on and on. The readouts are just, you just can't believe. I mean, they take it down to microscopic information, things that we probably wouldn't care about. They care about it. Well, because they understand the bigger picture. Well, it's it's all about creation and and how, you know, What's the level? Where does it where does it go to one day? You know, it goes if it goes 55 critical mass. What's going to happen to the cellular structure of certain things on the planet, including the people? When you think about billions of pieces of information running through your system, 
through other, because of other people's conversations, that means other people's consciousness is running through your system at a cellular level. Well, that's just the whole, that's the thing that gets me because uh, there's, you know, government ruling in most of the states that you're not allowed to smoke inside a building. But you can stand there and and have 30 people on their cell phones around you, and that's way worse for you. You'd be yeah, better off smoking. Um, I mean, it's that it's that bad. I know. And it just, it, I mean, I've been to the airport to pick somebody up, and everyone around me is using a cell phone that with that with no protection whatsoever. And and I would rather I mean I'd rather I'd rather have a guy with a big fat cigar blowing it up my nose <laughs> because at least then I know I could go take something to clean out my lungs. You can't. Once radiation is, has warped your your DNA, um, there's very little that can that can fix it unless you have, unless you have the technology to do it. So um, that's, and that's another reason why I mentioned on the intro of the show um, to check out the vault. On our on our website, Starseed Hotline, um, there's a new entry in the vault that <clears throat> it's called Starseed Booby Traps, and it's more than just electromagnetic radiation. There's a lot of things that, sure, they're bad for the human body, but when you put a starseed with their frequency and resonance inside that human body, these things are way worse. It's like kryptonite. Right. So go down the list. Go down the list and see what what you expose yourself to daily. Because mm-hmm. a lot of humans on the planet, they don't plan on being here very long. You know, uh, I really feel bad for some of these kids that go to sleep with their cell phones in their bed texting in the middle of the night, nonstop. Because what's going to happen to them, it's going to shorten their life. They will not grow up to be big and strong and, you know. As you know, <clears throat> I did a lot of research for a long time um, because of the electromagnetic pollution problem uh, from more than just cell phones, but that's really the the the, the worst of it um, that you can't you can't avoid. Now, if you live within three miles of a cell phone tower, you are still in a danger zone. But there are things that you can do um, to offset it, to balance it out. You can't get rid of the cell phone tower unless you want to move out near the boonies somewhere. And, and a cell phone is a necessity these days. So you can't change the presence of it, but you can change the way it um, affects your body and you can um, enhance your body's resilience to it. So I, I set out on a quest to to find the most um, advanced and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, reliable and scientifically tested because there's a bunch of products out there it's like oh we do this and we do that and I was like I want to see where this has been tested I want to see the the hard evidence the empirical data well that's why silica is so important and you and I have talked we're looking at two new products now uh, and we'll be able to tell our listeners maybe in a week or so about these new silica products but silica when you start when you're around electromagnetic energy 24/7, it's, your silica starts burning out in your body because you're, 
you know, it's like a computer. The, the crystals burn out. Well, so do we. And if you don't replace yourself with silica, you're you're going to get in trouble. And silica is a requirement to keep your bones healthy. So, you know, these women that are going into osteoporosis, you know, early, and it may be because their silica is burned out because of their cell phones, computers, just electromagnetic pollution. So those of us, uh, you know, that that know this, we're going to have to uh, stay together on it and keep this going. The government isn't going to acknowledge this. No one is going to come out and uh, say, you know, don't use a cell phone. They're not going to do it. They're not going to take them away. No. When the wireless industry, no. um, <clears throat> as of a couple of years ago when I was doing this research, it's $200 billion a year. They're not about to tell you no. anything except for, oh, there's no conclusive evidence. Well, excuse me, I have seen conclusive evidence, Two. and there's a lot of stuff going on that we won't have to go into right now. But the bottom line is that I want to say when we put um, – when we when we mention a product or have it on our site, it's because we know something about it, and uh, you can rest assured that it's it's been tested and proven. Well, that concludes our show for this evening, and I want to thank you all for tuning in. We will be back two weeks from tonight. And until then, remember to keep gratitude in your heart and show compassion rather than judgment. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 